0: Bienvenidos and welcome to the Histories of Mexico. Episode 9, Tabasco Part 7. The Elder, the Younger, and the Nephew. We are currently listening to one of many Spanish army fights and drum marches, meant to inspire the Spanish soldiers as they set off to expand the borders of the mighty Spanish Empire. Although the two came from vastly different worlds, I can't help but hear certain similarities between these Spanish military marching songs and some of the native songs we have been hearing in previous intros, mainly from the Chocos of Tabasco. Although the instruments are arguably very different, and the artists from different lands, they seem to be producing similar moods and reactions within the intended audience, and my mind can't help but try to connect the dots between these many similarities. Did the Fife's influence modern interpretations of long-lost native tunes and sounds after decades and centuries of exposure? Or do these kinds of melodies and sounds exist in some vast shared reservoir of consciousness and ideas where a flute and drum make for some effective pump-up music? Who's to say? And I'm sure men and women far smarter than I have thought long and hard on these subjects and have produced far neater and well-worded conclusions, so let me stick to what I'm relatively better at and get on with today's show. With that lengthy opening out of the way, I wanted to wish everyone a wonderful holiday and new year, and hope you have all had a great start to your 2023. I am happy to announce that there will be some exciting changes coming to the channel in the next few months, so I will post announcements and the like as necessary. All that out of the way, let's get going with our episode. Today is going to be a tidal wave of dates and names that may feel a little overwhelming, but I will do my best to properly introduce the important characters and mention some of the names that will appear more prominently in other state episodes and whose inclusion here will help establish a strong foundation of knowledge when we get to them in the future. In the end, we will recap everything as always and make sure we have all the important names and events properly ordered in our minds. With that said, let's quickly recap our last episode and see where we left off in the evolution of Tabasco from territory to state. After Juan de Grijalva returns and is disavowed by his uncle Don Diego de Velázquez, meeting his end in the far-off jungles of Honduras under the orders of the cruel Pedradias de Avila, Hernán Cortes is the man promoted to the corner office, and after some shenanigans, Cortes leaves before a letter from Spain arrived, giving him any semblance of permission to do so. He arrived at the mouth of the Grijalva River in Tabasco on March 12, 1519 CE, and from there he first pushed the native Chocos out of the city of Potonchan, then on the twenty fifth of March engaged in the historic battle of Centla, where the Spanish horses along with some minor help from the spanish men and thirteen riders in particular managed to defeat and scatter the assembled mayan host and establish the town of santa maria de la victoria claiming it in the name of the spanish empire cortez then left a weak garrison behind as he sought better fortunes in tenochtitlan and this garrison would be brushed aside almost immediately after Cortés and his fearsome horses left Tabasco by the bitter and newly emboldened natives. A series of ineffective Cortés-appointed mayors and major rebellions later, and we see the most recent of these appointments, one Baltasar de Osorio y Gallegos, take up the job and attempt to establish order. He would also fail spectacularly and proved to be an early antagonist to our episode's protagonist, as we will now come to see. It will serve us well at this point to introduce said protagonist, and the first of the three Franciscos de Montejos we will discuss in this episode. Francisco de Montejo the Elder, who was born in Salamanca, Spain, on an unknown date in about 1473, to fathers Juan de Montejo and Catalina Alvarez de Tejada, both of whom came from minor Iberian nobility, meaning young Francisco the Elder, would be born a Hidalgo, already expected to do great things from a young age. He was described by chronicler Bernal Diaz del Castillo as medium-statured, with a friendly face, and a frank man who still knew how to enjoy a good time. He was a skilled horseman, but better suited for negotiations and business than the affairs of war, although he usually spent beyond his means. While residing in Spain at the age of 29, he fathered a son with one Ana de León, who was born in December 1508 at the town of Sevilla. The boy would carry his father's name, and often also carries his mother's name, and is thus known as Francisco de Montejo y León, the second Francisco in our story. And to avoid confusion and lengthy names, his father will often be referred to as simply the Elder Montejo, or the Elder, while his son we will refer to as the Younger Montejo or the younger. Montejo the elder also had two siblings, a brother Juan de Montejo, who would serve under him in the new world, as well as a younger sister, Maria de Montejo, whose son would be the third Francisco de Montejo we will encounter, and as the elder's nephew, he is known historically and creatively as Francisco de Montejo the nephew. These three Francisco de Montejos, the elder, the younger, and the nephew, might be better known within the actual state of Yucatán, where they ultimately established their empire. But they would first have to take control of Tabasco before moving on to the greater Yucatán region. And because of this, they are majorly important in our discussions of the state's history. Montejo the Elder would set off for the Caribbeans in 1513, under an expedition organized by our old friend Pedrarias Tavilla, who had received a royal appointment to take control of Castilla de Oro, a Spanish colony that sits on the modern-day borders of Panama and Colombia. Montejo's first mission would be to break off from the fleet and head to Santo Domingo and the island of Hispaniola, modern-day Haiti and the Dominican Republic, to recruit more men. After being sent by Pedrarias on an ill-equipped and unsuccessful mission, Attempting to expand into the territory that would become Nueva Granada, that is, modern-day Colombia, he decided he had had enough of the cruel warlord and put in his lot with Diego de Velázquez by transferring to the island of Cuba in 1515 and assisting in the pacification of its last holdout city, Havana. His assistance, coupled with his Hidalgo status, quickly gained the favor of Velázquez, who was seeking to collect as many minor nobles and petty lords as he could within the New World, as it lent him some useful credibility as top dog. Thus, Montejo earned his family's first lands within the New World with the estates of Marien, just outside the new colonial capital of Havana, along with the customary unpaid workers to work the encomiendas, Kickstarting the New World Empire, he would diligently work at expanding for the next 35-odd years. He would next participate in the expedition of Juan de Grijalva in 1518, and along with his fellow subcaptain and future comrade-in-arms, Alonso de Avila, turned on Grijalva, opting to back Pedro de Alvarado, which is how the two became close with Pedro's best friend in the whole wide world, Hernán Cortés. He later joined Cortes as he conquered his way into history and earned the Spanish captain's trust enough to be sent on July 26, 1519 with the first official letters defending the famous conqueror's actions in a series of famous letters sent by Cortes to the Spanish royal court known as Las Cartas de Relacion, or the letters of relation, which will come more into play when we get into the discussions of Cortes versus Velázquez. Montejo the Elder triumphantly arrived with a rich trove of never-before-seen treasures and items, which he presented to the by now crowned Holy Roman and Spanish Emperor Charles V. He also presented Cortes' letters and defended the conqueror of the Aztecs against the vicious yet possibly valid accusations of Diego de Velázquez. Montejo, however, was a skilled negotiator and spokesman and managed to defend the Cortes name, returning triumphantly in 1922 to give his old friend the good news in the new capital of Nueva España, Mexico City. Cortez could barely contain his gratitude, and Montejo would now add to his estates in Salamanca, Spain, and La Marien, Cuba, those of the rich encomiendas in the wealthy town of Azcapotzalco, now awarded to him by Cortez for his continued loyalty. It seemed for a time that Montejo would settle down in Mexico City to tend to his new holdings for he began building a massive mansion to go with his successful plantations and mines, which were developing very nicely. But all those noisy accusations made by Don Diego de Velázquez, bitter and unwilling stepping stone in Cortez's meteoric career, must have still been buzzing in the head of the emperor, who now began to wonder if there was any credibility to said claims. I mean, what exactly was this mega-popular warlord Cortes still doing gallivanting around New Spain, claiming territory in the name of the emperor when said emperor had not ordered him to do so? And in fact, said emperor had been assigning adelantados to do just that, and if his emperorness remembered correctly, none of them had been named Cortes. Cortes was thus formally and politely ordered to come into Emperor Charles V's office to explain himself. And Charles was fully prepared to tell the ambitious conqueror that maybe his personal interests no longer aligned with those of the companies, and perhaps he should seek employment elsewhere. This royal thrust, Cortes would deflect and parry with his own repose by sending Montejo the Elder back across the pond to personally represent him in court yet again. Francisco de Montejo, the elder, dutifully went at the behest of his captain and friend and deftly maneuvered Cortez's reputation out of the dire straits it found itself in and into the open waters of political independence, greatly distinguishing himself with his eloquent speech and reasonable argumentation. On paper, this was a victory for Cortez. However, it would be Francisco de Montejo, the elder, who would truly win the day for the connections he made while in the Spanish court would come to benefit him far longer than it would benefit Cortés. The most visible of these connections would be made in a chapel in Sevilla in 1525 when Montejo married Doña Beatriz de Herrera, the fabulously wealthy and well-connected widow of the recently deceased conquistador, Alonso Esquivel, who might have been the first governor of Jamaica. However, I haven't been able to pin down his exact identity. While the dead husband is not terribly important to our story, what is important is the boatloads of money he left his newly single wife back in Spain once he had actually kicked the bucket. This money and influence would now be at the disposal of de Montejo, and with this newfound wealth added to his already sizable holdings, the increasingly restless man began formulating his new dream. He had lived in Cuba, then Mexico City, and now Sevilla, And during this time, he recognized an itch he thought he had scratched out long ago, for Montejo, you see, still hungered for glory and the thrill of conquest. Men like Cortes and Pizarro, the conquerors of the Aztecs and the Incas, had set the bar by proving that an ambitious and charismatic leader could triumph over the mighty indigenous kingdoms that lived in the New World, and Montejo believed that the Yucatán could serve as his personal Mexico or Peru. His mind would be made up by 1526, when he journeyed to Granada with designs of pitching a new conquest of the Yucatan to the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. This request would see support from fellow conqueror Panfilio de Narvez, a man we have mentioned a few times here on the show, but hasn't gotten quite as much exposure since his exploits are concentrated in the Caribbean, where he got his start, Veracruz, where he lost his eye, and the reason he was in Granada in the first place, to receive his appointment as adelantado and governor of Florida, but failed after multiple attempts to pacify the peninsula and ultimately drowned floating along in a flimsy canoe during a storm while attempting to sail back to Spanish ports in Mexico. We will hear about the de-eyeing of Narvez when we get to Veracruz, but the story of the four men that survived the storm that ultimately took his life Including a Berber man named Estebancio, who is perhaps the first African-born person to set foot in the United States, is fascinating since they managed to safely make it to land in the Gulf and began walking west until they finally found a Spanish port. An entire 8 years and 2,000 kilometers or 1,119 miles later, all relayed in the memoirs of the survivor, Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vacas, named now, fragios y comentarios, or disasters and commentaries. Certainly a story with all the trappings of a juicy supplemental episode, methinks. But sticking with Montejo, on November 19, 1526, he presented his petition to the court, arguing effectively that the Yucatan could serve as a center of trade and administration, which would bring stability and religion to the region. Oh, and did he mention how much money he believed they would all make if they let him go? This very convincing argument, coupled with the endorsements of both the esteemed veteran conquistador Narvez and the illustrious new wife Doña Beatriz de Herrera, quickly gained the approval of the Council of the Indies and Emperor Charles V, and on December eighth, 1526, the king would do Montejo one better and named him Adelantado de Yucatán, governor and captain general of the newly named yet still unconquered province, and bestowed him with the royal authority to conquer, settle, and govern, at his own expense, any lands he found within the region of the Yucatán. And these titles were to be held for life. The crown was very explicit with the at-your-own-expense bit, and told de Montejo they did not expect to spend a single coin beyond his salary of 250,000 maravedis, or about $75,000 a year for his titles and offices, a line Montejo would certainly test in the coming years. He was, however, given full discretion on how to accomplish these goals so long as he adhered to the principal objectives of the crown, introducing the natives of the New World to Catholicism. And so, appropriate treatment of the Indians was painfully spelled out for Montejo, and he was warned to adhere to the spirit and letter of these orders, or there would be dire consequences, as Hernán Cortés would be destined to find out. These royal decrees additionally stipulated that Montejo had exactly one year to leave, or the deal was off, and so Montejo had precious little time to prepare for his life-changing campaign. He rushed back to Seville to organize his expedition and raised an additional 28,000 Castellanos, or about $25,000, a considerable sum in that time, and he spent this small fortune purchasing, supplying, and manning four galleons with 250 men he hired along with crews to operate the vessels. Alonso de Avila, co-lieutenant in the Grijalva expedition, just so happened to be in Spain during these preparations, and the two riders in the charge of the 13 once again joined forces for an epic conquistador team-up with Alonso named as Montejo's lieutenant. This is also likely the time where Montejo picked up the rest of the extended Montejo clan, who he would initially install across his various haciendas in Cuba. Most important of these would be his new wife, who was already proving an indispensable member of his inner circle, and his teenage son Francisco de Montejo y Leon, the younger, who was now personally brought to the new world in order to learn the ropes of the family business. The nephew was likely also along for the ride with his mother Maria, although his information is hard to pin down and it's tough to know exactly what he was doing. He was likely not far from the campaigning with the rest of the men, however, and soon it would be time for him to really shine. Montejo also picked up three clergymen in order to address the religious stipulations of the court of the Indies, orders he fully intended to heed lest his efforts be undermined by false accusations in the future. Be sure to keep an eye on that space. All his preparations now ready. The elder, the younger, and the nephew. Montejo's wife, lieutenants, family, titles, 250 men, and three clergymen all departed from the Spanish port of San Lucar de Barrameda in mid-June 1527, headed for the new world and hopefully new prospects. Out of all the resources, supplies, and men Francisco de Montejo left with on June 1527, his title of adelantado would be the most crucial of all. But that leads us to the all-important question of what exactly an adelantado was, a word I have used a few times to describe a few different people, but haven't given much context on. Well, basically, an adelantado was a title held by Spanish nobles originating from the time of the Reconquista, and the reign of King Alfonso X in 1253 CE. The adelantado title was handed to a man who would act as part temporary judge and part executive officer, serving as a direct representative of the king and charged with implementing royal orders in his assigned area. His was ultimately a job of administering justice and being the final word in immediate matters all within the purview and consideration of the actual wishes of the king and court. The role is similar to that of the Roman prefect, who went on campaign to the dangerous frontier with the legions as a representative of the senate who sat safely back in Rome. The origin of the word itself seems to stem from the phrase por adelante, which in Spanish means from the front, and refers to one who leads from the front or even the forward man. After its successful implementation in the Andalusia region of Spain against the Islamic armies, the title and position would be adopted as a mainstay of the Spanish imperial machine. For our purposes, the words Vanguard General or Forward General work fairly well. Francisco de Montejo the Elder would thus be officially made Adelantado de Yucatán in 1526, and thus history and this show will often refer to him by this title of El Adelantado, as well as the elder, when distinguishing him from his equally energetic, namesaked relatives. The newly minted Conquistador Prefect of the Yucatán arrived in 1527 to take his new task head on. The job at hand, however, would prove much harder than initially anticipated. The current plan, you see, was to approach from the eastern shore of the Yucatán while safely penetrating into its center, leaving a string of settlements behind to serve as resupply and reinforcement stations. After arriving and enjoying a series of small adventures in Cozumel, then Cabo Catoche, El Adelantado attempted to push into the interior of the Yucatán Peninsula, but was forced to stick to the coast in the first of many failed incursions. He would travel south by sea to Chetumal, and while in southern Quintana Roo, he oversaw the establishment of the Villa de Salamanca de Shelha along the coast of the Riviera Maya, the first Salamanca of eight that will be established during the Montejos time in the Humid Peninsula and today still holds an archaeological site called Shelha that also serves as a recreational park. Meanwhile, his lieutenant Alonso de Avila would land on the sunny beaches of modern day Playa del Carmen and founded another villa also named salamanca these things are going to keep popping up so get ready but this time salamanca de shamanha and here at shamanha Alonso would sit and await further orders from his captain el adelantado the same captain who at that very moment was getting a reintroduction to the passionate and fiery resistance that was becoming the native's biggest export which, coupled with the deadly jungle sicknesses, began to take their toll on the European health bars. And so the forward general of the Yucatán took a calculated step backwards and sailed to Veracruz en route to Mexico City in order to seek an audience with the first Royal Audiencia of Nueva España, leaving Alonso de Avila on his own in Samanhá with orders to hold down the fort as best he could, while the elder Montejo negotiated their next move in their conquest of the Yucatán. Now, before I go on, we must quickly discuss this thing that is the Royal Audiencia, which, much like the role of El Adelantado, was another institutional development coming straight out of the Reconquista, acting like a makeshift and temporary administrative or judicial body that would run the affairs of newly won lands far removed from the safety and comfort of the royal court back in the Spanish capital. If the adelantado was a conquered lands temporary king, then the audiencia was a conquered colony's temporary senate, cabinet, and supreme court all rolled into one. Their primary functions included coordination, administration, and communication back to the Royal Council of the Indies, but its most important and often utilized function was to act as an extension of the royal will and administer royal justice. If a military or administrative agent, mayor, captain, or even adelantado was going off script, it was fully within the royal audiencia's power to strip said man of titles and command. Initially, it would be these guys who would come to settle various disputes between the plethora of conquistadors that came to jockey with one another over said titles and commands. But pretty soon, it proved impossible for these guys not to get into bed with the very men they were there to police. Many of the adelantados and other powerful men of the time would come to learn that the best way to stay out of trouble was to bribe and buy the audiencias to see things your way. And so, upon arriving at Mexico City, El Adelantado sought an audience with the new president of the First Audiencia, a man named Nuno de Guzmán, a man so new at the job that he was still floating towards Mexico on a boat from Spain. Guzmán had served as the personal bodyguard of King Carlos I back in Spain, and was specifically sent by his lord to counterbalance the Cortesian grip of power, which now Emperor Charles believed was getting too tight for his royal liking. This meeting would be delayed until the following year, however, due to the constant influence of Huracán and his stormy children. Montejo was not idle during his stay in Mexico City, awaiting Guzmán. He took a tour to see how his various properties and mines had been getting along since he had last been there, But more importantly, he met with his old captain and friend, Hernán Cortés, who had just returned from Honduras and the successful crushing of the well-liked but ill-fated Cristóbal de Olid, failed seeker of Grijalva. The elder Montejo's son, meanwhile, has a murky history up until this point. Like I said, we believe he joined his father when he left from Spain to the Yucatán in 1527, and sometime after that, we know he returned with Cortés from the Deolid revenge mission in Las Siberias, a.k.a. Honduras, and is said to have distinguished himself admirably in both battle and on campaign. What he was up to in between these two episodes is not exactly clear. Like his father, history and this show often refer to the younger Montejo by another title, that of El Mozo which is a Spanish nickname for a boy or son of the same name as his father, similar to how we in English might call someone by the name Junior when their name might be Frank. The three men reunited and Cortes handed the Montejos a capital idea. Rather than go directly against a well-defended native area in nothing but a flimsy-built garrison along the coast with the sea and a few islands pinning you against the jungle, why not fully subjugate and pacify the surrounding territories of the Yucatán, particularly those which were already under some Spanish control, in order to make the actual goal of conquering the Yucatán interior infinitely more manageable. And this is an example of both Cortez's sharp strategic mind and the elders' flexibility in recognizing and adapting to a better plan. With this sound strategy now adopted, El Adelantado went into his meeting with President Guzman with a new strategy, asking for the official governorship of both the Yucatan and Tabasco territories in order to better coordinate the efforts to pacify the unruly Maya. This request was granted by Guzman with little trouble. It's likely the two men already knew each other, and the two had at the very least heard of each other, and Montejo was not who the Emperor Charles had sent Guzman to keep in check. Besides, President Guzman was likely more preoccupied with how he was going to survive the cortesian pit of vipers he had just walked into than he was concerned with who was running the relatively poor Tabasco. And so he would make Francisco de Montejo the elder the first official royal governor of Tabasco since Cortes had made his gubernatorial appointments without any royal approval. Likely another reason Guzman approved the appointment since he would be removing a Cortesian element and elevating a loyal royal agent in one stroke of the pen. As such, the new royal governor of Tabasco would arrive at his post in early 1529 to replace Baltasar de Osorio y Gallegos, who was not doing so hot in his position. Despite popping up in our story a few times, there is not much to say about Baltasar de Osorio y Gallegos, except that he would serve as the perfect foil to Montejo in these early years in Tabasco. We don't really know much at all about his childhood or upbringing except that he was born, like de Montejo, both in Sevilla and as a minor Hidalgo, although we don't even know for sure when he was born. But we do know he came over to New Spain in 1526, accompanying Luis Ponce de León and his failed invasion of Florida which was proving as tough enough to crack as the Yucatan was. While bouncing around in the Gulf after this defeat in Florida, he is noticed and picked up by Cortes, who had a knack for attracting cruel and ruthless men into his orbit, and was assigned to the struggling province of Tabasco, since the last four guys Cortes had sent had all failed spectacularly in one way or another. Gallegos, it seemed, was faring no better, and his cruel and heavy-handed approach to leadership had actually managed to turn not only the natives further against them, but even his own people were calling for his resignation. And when the elder Montejo arrived, he would find various debt collectors and discontented citizens hounding Gallego's very doorstep. Ever the diplomat, Montejo would smooth things over between everyone, treating Gallegos especially with respect, since making enemies would go directly against his preliminary goal for peace and subjugation in the region. The last thing he wanted was an embittered rival perfectly poised to stick a knife in his back just as he was facing equally angry and murderous natives with pointy objects poised to be stuck into his front. So despite being none too pleased to be shown the door, Gallegos was in no position to be denying a direct royal order and so strategically retreated under the guise of establishing Villas in Simatan offering to watch over the quiet yet unsecured central Chontalpa region for an administration he was now super excited to be working for. Don't worry, you'll see. We will indeed soon see just how effective Gallegos would prove at this task of maintaining peace at the elders back. This first obstacle seemingly overcome, El Adelantado dashed off a letter to the emperor with an update on his appointment as governor and despite being told he would not be given a Castellan over what they had already given him, the elder Montejo requested for more money, pretty please, and with this letter sent off, he went to pacify his unruly territory. El Adelantado began his new Tabascan campaign by quelling a fresh rebellion in Chicalango that had been stoked due to their harsh treatment at the hands of ex Mayor Baltasar de Osorio y Gallegos. Although the lands that make up Chicalango currently sit in modern-day Campeche, Campeche itself would not exist in its current form until 1863, when it was admitted into the Mexican Union as a state. Until then, it was typically considered part of the Yucatan Territory, along with Quintana Roo, while pieces of its western coast were wrapped up into the Tabascan Territory. So the area we are talking about was, until the mid-1800s, considered part of Tabasco. And pacifying this region of Chicalango and the Laguna de Terminos would become a recurring theme for Tabascan leaders. To this objective, El Adelantado sent his son, El Mozo, to submit the Chicalangans to the king's justice, which El Mozo accomplished, going on to found the Villa of Salamanca de Chicalango, our third Salamanca, where he handed out lands to his soldiers and named a mayor and judge to administer the law essentially setting up a mini adelantado and audiencia in the newly established villa. This pattern will be repeated in nearly every native town the Montejista forces encounter and was essentially the conquistador playbook during this time. Step 1. Encounter native town, beat up any local resistance, and convert the survivors. Step 2. Name the new place after your hometown or favorite saint, distribute lands to your loyal men, and name mayors, judges, and aldermen. Then, step three, sit back and watch the Castellans roll in. While the younger Montejo was successfully quelling violent resistance in the east, remember those enemies the elder was so desperately trying to avoid leaving at his back? Well, Baltasar de Osorio y Gallegos had been busy making those very enemies behind El Adelantado's back. And in late 1529, he convinced the natives in Cimatan through the same persuasive means he had utilized in Chicalango to go from begrudging but quiet Spanish subjects to passionately despising anything made in Spain. After a handful of months chafing under his regime, the entire region exploded into full-on uprising and kicked off their little rebellion by sacrificing some royal authorities to their long-neglected yet ever-thirsty gods. The Simantecos, you will no doubt recall, like the Xicalangans, were not the Chocos of Potonchan, they were Nawas, with closer cultural ties to the Aztecs of Tenochtitlan than they had with their Puma neighbors. And they would be the last tribal forces to be fully subjugated within Tabasco, managing to hold back full subjugation for over a hundred years until the 1640s, where they finally laid down their spears, only to pick them back up along with the other tribes, such as the Chol and Zoques, when the entire southern zone of Mexico erupted into a massive Mayan rebellion, we will cover in a few episodes. What this all meant for our current story, however, is it forced El Adelantado to recall El Mozo from Salamanca de Chicalango and hurriedly send him down to Simatan to crush this brand new rebellion. After successfully reducing the second rebellious bonfire to a smoldering bed of discontented embers, he again rewarded his men with lands and named one Melcor Heredia, the first mayor of the newly founded Villa de Santiago Simatán. The governor extraordinaire Gallegos, meanwhile, had bravely fled to Mexico City at the first sign of trouble from the Simantecos. His actions had also put him squarely on Montejo's naughty list, having now been the catalyst for two uprisings he had been forced to deal with. And although Montejo presently believed himself rid of this troublesome agent, like most successful villains and antagonists, Gallegos would be back for a sequel. At this point, however, Montejo the elder realized he needed reinforcements to speed up this conquest of Tabasco. So he penned a letter to Salamanca de Chamanha in the fall of 1529, telling Alonso de Avila to take off his warm-ups and get into the game. This play call by El Adelantado would prove a master stroke, as Alonso de Avila would prove as successful a commander as El Mozo, and equally indispensable in the coming campaigns, and I think by this point a proper introduction to Alonso is long overdue. Born in the year 1486 in the Spanish town of Ciudad Real, which is just south of Madrid, Alonso is believed to have come to the New World with Pedrarias Tavilla, and likely jumped over to Cuba on a similar boat of disgruntled men as Bernal Díaz sometime in 1514. He would join the Grijalva and Cortez expeditions, serving as one of the 13 horsemen at the Battle of Centla, and survive through the initial struggles of the Aztec campaigns. After the events of the Noche Triste in Tenochtitlan, an event which occurred within the Aztec capital that we will cover in detail much later, Alonso de Avila was sent by Cortes to Spain in order to request recognition for cortesian independence from Don Diego de Velasquez, which Alonso successfully acquired and returned, only to be sent out again by Cortes, this time with a boat full of gold and other gifts bound for the royal treasury. This time, however, Alonso and his treasure would be captured by French pirates, and Alonso would spend the following two years in captivity until he was able to arrange his ransom and release. He had currently been cooling his heels and had been planning his next move in Spain when his friend and fellow veteran of the Cortez expeditions, Francisco de Montejo the Elder, arrived and invited him to join in his planned Yucatán adventures, to which Alonso agreed and helped establish the Villa de Salamanca de Samanjá, where he had been residing when he received a letter from El Adelantado requesting he leave and make for Victoria to pacify the surrounding regions of southern Tabasco before turning their sights back onto the Yucatán. As Montejo the Elder moved through the interior of Tabasco, focusing on the Simantecos in their various bases around modern-day Cunduacán, he left El Mozo to hold the recently pacified Victoria and Chicalango regions while Alonso de Avila was given the task of sailing up the Grijalva River and pacifying the tribes of southwestern Tabasco, notably the regions populated by the Zoque people in the south of the modern municipality of Huimanguillo, which he accomplished along with the help of Juan Juan de Lerma, an influential friend of the elder Montejo's wife, Beatriz de Herrera, who will come to be a key ally to the Montejista clan in the years and struggles to come. By 1530 CE, the three fronts had more or less achieved their aims. Alonso de Avila and Juan de Lerma had quelled the Zoques and were returning to La Victoria. El Mozo had maintained the northern La Victoria and Chicalango territories quiet, and the Chontalpa region saw the major rebellious Nahua leaders either executed by the elder or fleeing into the vast jungles of southern Tabasco in order to avoid capture. Thus, the regions were finally under relative control and the whole of the Tabasco territory for the first time was quiet. El adelantado could finally get back to adelantandoing, into the proper direction. The next phase of his plan involved approaching the interior of Campeche through the south, starting with the other Choco province the Potonchanos would have likely told Montejo all about, the Acalan region in the southern border between Tabasco and Campeche. So, he headed down the Río de la Sierra and Usumacinta tributary to Teapa, where he rested and gathered strength. Unfortunately, the elder Montejo came down with a tropical sickness, so he handed command of his troops to the two subordinates he had brought along, Alonso de Avila and a man named by Dr. Diogenes as Alonso de Luján. Dr. Diogenes continues and claims the governor of Chiapas, Don Juan Enríquez de Guzmán, had been resting in the nearby town of Itzapamangahoya when he heard that El Adelantado was nearby and visited the relatively famous and renowned explorer in Teapa. There he advised him to send the two Alonzos first south, crossing the mountains through the safer Chiapas side before moving north into Acalan from below. Along the way the Montejista forces could pick up supplies and men, Guzman would be more than happy to lend them, in order to assist the illustrious adelantado on his mission de montejo was not about to turn down this benevolent show of support and accepted the generous offer ultimately giving Alonso his blessing as he retired to la victoria via canoe to rest and recover while the alonzos and governor guzman headed for the spanish capital of the territory of chiapas now super quickly The current administrative capital of Chiapas is Tuxtla Gutierrez. But before 1892, the capital was held in San Cristobal de las Casas, a city which is still considered the cultural capital within the state. The city that served as capital for over 350 years was known for most of that time as Ciudad Real. However, to avoid confusion with the myriad of other Ciudad Reals we will be encountering, From here on out, I will refer to it by the name it would come to be known by when Chiapas officially joined the Mexican Union as a state in 1824, San Cristobal de las Casas. However, it was called Ciudad Real during the time we are talking about, and we should not confuse it with the man after which it was named, Bishop Cristobal de las Casas who is still active during this time and will be much more important in other states' stories as he becomes a highly influential bishop in cities across this region of the Americas, including the one that will come to bear his name in 1824. Alright, nice and confused on all that? Great! Don't worry if you are, we will have plenty of time to pick apart all of this when we get to speaking about Chiapas. So let's quickly get back to our story. The journey to San Cristobal de las Casas led through harsh weather and dangerous mountain passes, but the Alonzos persevered and arrived at the provincial capital where, true to his word, Governor Guzman supplied them with weapons, horses, supplies, and thick padded cotton shirts to defend against arrows. Guides were also provided who would take them through the Zeltal lands they would soon be crossing. They headed through the northeast until arriving at the Lagoon de Petén, where all they found was a little old woman too sick to have fled with the rest of her kinsmen. She told them where said kinsmen were hiding, and despite not discovering their cacique, they did discover some natives who pointed them south towards Acalan. The adventure continued until the Alonzos arrived at the river Ixtapa, or the Rio Blanco, which was the local name for this stretch of the Usumacinta. There they came across the town of Popane, where the natives reverently tied canoes together and carefully floated the awe-inspiring Spanish horses down the rivers. In this way, they quickly arrived by night to Tenochil in modern-day Tenosique, where the tired and weary Spanish rested before attempting to continue north towards modern-day Balancan municipality the following morning. They kept trekking until facing an impassable lagoon, which in 1525 Cortes had built a bridge to cross, but was now partially destroyed due to flooding, and the Alonzos did not have the engineers necessary to repair it. Faced with this impassable obstacle and little food, they were forced to return to Tenochil and pass a very unpleasant winter of 1530 within the ancient city's walls. There they would wait for four months, and this cold winter they endured until finally, in February 1531, the Alonzos were able to leave Tenochil and with the help of some native guides, successfully traversed through the jungle passes from Tenosique into the borders of Acalan in northeastern Balancan, bordering southwestern Campeche. If you recall, the capital of this Putun province of Acalan was called Itzamakanak, although I have also read it written as Itzamkanak. Either way, this Putun provincial capital is believed to be the city that the Alonzos finally arrived in the spring of 1531. The natives of Itzamacanac, or Itzamcanac, all fled in the face of the Spanish who discovered an abandoned town with tons of supplies left behind by the highly mercantile Putunes, which they happily gathered as they took a relieved breath, finally having reached their ultimate destination. The next day, skittish Acalan envoys met with the Alonzos, who reassured them they would not be harmed and that they only wished to talk, visibly stroking the manes of their powerful horses. The inhabitants got the hint and returned bearing gifts for the Spanish and their mighty steeds, eventually revealing to them the extent of their vast trade networks. Alonso de Avila in particular was very impressed as these networks stretched from Potonchan in the north to Chetumal and Tulum in southern Quintana Roo, and these networks proved a potential encirclement of the Yucatán via a string of settlements might be possible. Davila decided to establish a Spanish colony, naming it our fourth Salamanca, Salamanca de Acalan, and all this would ultimately prove a mistake though, as the town, perfectly suited for the native Putunes, was terribly isolated and hard to reinforce by friendly Spanish forces. I mean, just imagine the entire arduous trek the Alonzos took since Teapa just to get to where they were right now. Alonzo soon realized this very thing and further realized that they were not close to any major land or river routes and found not a single mine nearby. So 40 days after its founding, the 4th Salamanca was ordered destroyed, and the Spanish marched towards their secondary objective of Champotón to the north. From the failed town of Salamanca de Acalan, the Alonzos continued to Champotón, in northern Campeche, close to where the disastrous scenes of the coast of the bad battle played out. Champotón is described to have had 8,000 palm houses within its tall walls, surrounded by a deep moat. Once arriving, the Spanish were well-received and introduced to the town's sacred and revered fishing idols. Davila repaid this kindness by tenderly removing the idols from their altars and very carefully hurling them straight into the ground, ordering a cross be built in their stead. The leaders were then baptized by Alonso and his men, acting as dutiful godparents. Having completed his objectives, Alonso sent a letter to Montejo the Elder, who was currently sitting on his heels in Salamanca de Chicalango, with word that they had successfully made it to Acalan, and were now in Champotón, awaiting orders to continue into the Yucatán. Montejo the Elder was overjoyed to hear his friend was alive, and immediately left his troubling situation in Tabasco to meet with his triumphant Alonso's. Now, all this leads us to the obvious question I know you are all burning to ask. Why was Montejo the elder now in Chicalango and not recovering from his sickness in La Victoria? Well, El Adelantado's nemesis was back to continue being a thorn in the Montejo's side. Our old friend Baltasar de Osorio y Gallegos was once again up to no good, and after pulling a brave Sir Robin in late 1529, fleeing the Simanteco Rebellion in Cunduacan, He had been living in Mexico City, stewing over his embarrassing loss of governorship to the elder Montejo. The discontented man thus did what brooding discontented men do best and spent the next several months using his influence and outrageous amounts of borrowed money to scheme and bribe his way back into the provincial governorship, an act made all the easier by the famously corrupt nature of the first audiencia by this point. Governorship secured, Gallegos left for Victoria in the middle of 1530. He arrived, showed his papers, and immediately ordered the elder and his supporters be put in jail, then added salt to the wound by seizing their properties and moving into their lavish estates. Montejo the younger managed to avoid this coup as he was in Salamanca de Chicalango, currently under management of his capable stepmother, Dona Beatriz de Herrera. This time, however, Baltasar had crossed the line, and it would be the Montejos' turn to flex their influential muscle. This political counterattack was led by the wife of El Adelantado, Doña Beatriz de Herrera, who reached out to her old friend and pacifier of the Zoques of Huimanguillo, Juan de Lerma. De Lerma was currently living in Cuba, but he had powerful friends in high places back in Madrid, and Juan chose to write a memorial on November 23rd, 1530, denouncing the crimes of Gallegos against the Montejo clan along with the innocent citizens of Tabasco, demanding that the emperor do something about this egregious breach of his justice in his colonies and further outcried for order to be re-established in this seemingly out-of-control province. Pretty soon, the Queen of Spain herself, Isabella de Portugal, was sending an angrily worded missive to the First Audiencia de Nueva España, ordering them to investigate these scandalous rumors flaring across the court about the state of the Tabascan territory, demanding to know what on earth the royally appointed Adelantado de Yucatán was doing sitting in his own jail cell, and directing very pointed questions as to the extent of the various members personal involvement in these events, among other salacious accusations. When Gallegos got news of this missive's arrival in Mexico City, he did not even wait for the audiencia to act, and, feeling the heat of the queen's breath on his neck, he released the elder Montejo and his men in early 1531, who immediately fled to the Montejo stronghold currently located in Salamanca de Chicalango, just in case Gallegos changed his mind about changing his mind. There, while awaiting the court's justice to come down on Gallegos, the elder received de Avila's letter and set off to join his loyal friend in Champotón. Upon arriving in May 1531, he founded another city, Salamanca de Champotón, our fifth Salamanca, for those keeping track, and he likewise performed the hopefully by now familiar land distribution and title naming that went with founding a villa or town during this time. His forces once again reunited in Salamanca de Champotón and the Royal Audencia busy dealing with the fallout of Juan de Lerma's memoirs, El Adelantado believed the time to adelantar was nigh, and so in July 1531, the second attempted conquest of the Yucatán was launched. The first prong of the invasion would consist of Alonso de Avila and Francisco de Montejo, the nephew, who would go by land to cross the peninsula and head for Chetumal in southern Quintana Roo via the trade routes he had heard about from the Putunes in Itzamacanac. He also sought gold mines that were said to exist in the region and so took with him someone known as the Mine Taster. Their ultimate objective was to take Tulum and the eastern coast of Quintana Roo and establish a new settlement from which they were to push towards El Adelantado and El Mozo's Prong which was planned to come down from the north. This is the first time we're really talking about the nephew, but he would come to lead his uncle's forces with great loyalty and distinction, typically sent at the forefront of military campaigns as a sort of adelantado to the adelantado. It is uncertain where exactly he was born, but at the age of 13 he is said to be accompanying his uncle and cousin in the first conquest of the Yucatan in 1527. That means that by the time he was joining Alonso de Avila in pushing towards Chetumal, he was a grand total of 17 years old. The nephew is also called by Dr. Diogenes as Francisco Armamento, and so we may hear him called by that name here as well. A few days after Alonso left with nephew Montejo, in the same month of July 1531, the Montejo father and son duo sailed to Punta de Piedra, known as Ixil capital of the post classical Mayan Casiazgo of Campeche, a city that proved friendly to the Montejos. Here, Montejo the Elder founded our sixth Salamanca. Well, he tried to. He did intend to name the town Salamanca de Campeche, but he did not stay long enough to name a mayor or judges and only left behind a bare-bones garrison to hold it. And so, this Salamanca never officially became a city, until his son and nephew came back years later and reestablished it in his honor so it's the 6th salamanca but just barely here el adelantado would once again make a calculated move backwards to keep an eye on tabasco lest the natives take advantage of his absence or a certain nemesis come back for a totally unexpected and surprise close to the trilogy that was montejo v gallegos so, the elder handed the reins of his new invasion to the hands of his fully capable son, Francisco de Montejo y Leon El El Elmoso would slowly and methodically push towards the heart of the kingdom of the Cheles Maya, another of the dozen of Mayan ethnicities which was actually an offshoot of the Cocomes of Mayapan. The leader of the Cheles during this time, one Namux Chel, opted to peacefully allow the Spanish through his lands, rather than push for violence and potential destruction. Eventually, the Spanish arrived at the site of Chichen Itza, which the Cheles Maya had been leasing, and here the Spanish dropped their things on the ground and proclaimed the city of Ciudad Real had been established. Now, the Cheles Maya were long, long gone from the zone. Soon, the Spanish settled into a comfortable state of alertness, but unbeknownst to them, Chichen Itza was not the original home of the Cheles Maya. In fact, the site was technically only under their stewardship for Chichen Itza had become a sacred place to a variety of tribes throughout the centuries, and now their hated invader had penetrated and taken their holy city. We can imagine the reaction of the Christian world if some invader were to sweep aside the Swiss Guard protecting the Vatican City and decided to place a flag in St. Peter's Basilica. And yes, I'm aware it's not even remotely an apples-to-apples apples comparison I just gave, but the reaction of the Maya is comparable in that frighteningly quickly, they were surrounded on all sides by furious tribes clamoring for their blood and desperate to see them expelled from their hallowed city. Facing such a fanatical response and far from any sort of backup, Montejo Elmoso decided not to test his luck and opted to flee into the night back to the coast, and did not stop running until he was safely back at Salamanca de Champoton in January of 1532. We will flesh out this story during the Yucatan run, when we will officially meet all of these native Yucatec ethnicities and characters. Things were faring far better for Alonso de Avila and Montejo Armamento, the nephew, who successfully made it to Tulum, only for Alonso to once again discover his proposed location could not support a prosperous community. They then passed into Bacalal, which lay in the Mayan province of Chetumal, where he founded another Villarreal, named after his birth city of Ciudad Real in Spain, and he did the typical city-founding thing of distributing land, offices, and titles. For two months, he fortified Villarreal and attacked Chequitatil, where the cacique of Chetumal was hiding. He eventually managed to starve the inhabitants of Chequitatil into giving up this rebellious cacique, and with the victory complete, he carried off prisoners and treasure, which included gold idols and precious stones. Alonso then sent seven men with a letter gravely requesting reinforcements and resupply, directed to the elder Montejo in Salamanca de Champoton, along with the chunk of the rescued booty. But en route, these men were attacked and killed by natives, with the treasure, letters, and strategically vital pleas now all lost to the Yucatec jungle. Therefore, despite the early victories, by the beginning of 1533, the Spanish position in Real de Chetumal was becoming untenable thanks to the typical hardships of diseases, lack of supplies and reinforcement, and the constant Mayan raids keeping everyone on edge. Eventually, having heard no news from Tabasco and unsure if anyone would be even able to find them if they did come looking, the two leaders of the expedition, Francisco de Montejo, the nephew, and Alonso de Avila and the remaining men, all decided to escape while the getting was good, fleeing however they could towards Las Uberias, now known as Honduras. And after a long and arduous trek through the hot and humid jungle full of deadly bands of Mayan headhunters, Most of them arrived at the Honduran port of Trujillo in mid-March, 1533, under the hospitality of then-Governor Diego Alvites. They spent 25 days in the governor's hospitality as he arranged them passage back to the Gulf side of the Yucatan, finally embarking at the ends of April and disembarking in Salamanca de Champotón in June, 1533, where they met with Montejo the Elder, who, for the second time in his life, was overjoyed at having incorrectly assumed his loyal lieutenant dead. An assumption made given that de Avila's letter had been intercepted and never made it to Montejo to update him on the mission. Now, before we leave the southern region of Quintana Roo, it's expedient to note that it would be the site of the last two Salamancas established by Montejista influence. 10 years later, in 1543, a then 35-year-old Montejo el Mozo would send another pacification mission captained by another father-son duo, Gaspar and his son Melcor Tamayo Pacheco. And during this expedition, Salamanca de Chetumal and Salamanca de Bacalal are said to have been established by son Melkor Pacheco, our seventh and eighth Salamancas. Despite there being eight total cities originally named Salamanca, none have since retained the spanish portion of their names through the ages most would revert to their indigenous names such as chetumal champoton chelha and bacalal which would later be changed to bacalar while acalan was destroyed chicalango abandoned campeche renamed to san francisco rather than salamanca and shamanha would eventually be called playa del carmen and with that the only salamanca to remain is the original in spain capital of the independent community of Castile and León and birthplace of so many ambitious men seeking a better life in a new world. While Alonso and the nephew had been struggling in southern Quintana Roo, El Adelantado had once again not been having the easiest go of things in Tabasco. This year of 1533 would be the same year when news broke of Francisco Pizarro's discovery of Peru and the vast quantities of gold the Incas possessed causing many of Montejo's own men to follow men like the ever-scheming Pedro de Alvarado's lead and leave for better prospects in the South American conquering grounds. Their alternative would be to stay put within their garrison at Salamanca de Champotón and outlast the Mayan tsunami that seemed to never run out of men or arrows to hurl against their walls, a tide that even came close to capturing the royal governor of Tabasco himself in a concentrated push or earn lots of gold killing an already beaten people. Faced with these two situations, the Montejistas began hemorrhaging men to Peru. This in turn pushed the elder Montejo to once again travel to Mexico City in order to petition the Audiencia for more money, munitions, and supply for his war effort, leaving behind El Mozo to hold the fort in Champotón. While in Mexico, another decision was made by the now Second Audiencia of Mexico, the first having been dismissed over allegations of corruption to the surprise and gasps of no one at all. The decision of this new audiencia in the never-ending dispute between Baltasar de Osorio y Gallegos and Francisco de Montejo the Elder would come down in favor of the Montejos, and El Adelantado was officially, like for real this time guys, renamed the governor of Tabasco, additionally granting him more men and supplies for his martial efforts. This visit would also mark the end of Alonso de Avila's adventures in the Yucatan. He had twice managed to accomplish his mission and twice had been forced to abandon his gains due to broken communication lines, removing the possibility of reinforcement and resupply in the face of the many hardships presented by the Yucatec jungle and natives. He could fight the hostiles, but he did not want to fight starvation and desperation any longer. And it seems clear Alonso had had quite enough of hot, murderous jungles. Thank you very much. After he arrived in Mexico City in 1533, he would stay rather than follow El Adelantado and leave our current story. While he and his children still have a lot of history making left to do, so we will say a temporary goodbye to Alonso de Avila and return to the Montejo family quest of total Yucatán unification and pacification. While awaiting the return of the elder Montejo to Mexico City in order to settle the matters between him and Gallegos, the second audiencia had sent Francisco III, governor of Veracruz, as an intermediary meant to oversee any coming transfers of power. Francisco III took this to mean strip Montejo the Younger of power and take up residency in the elder Montejo's quarters. He then took a look around at the social situation and said, this won't do at all going on to begin administering his own unique brand of justice, which included favoring the natives in legal matters, punishing harsh treatment of natives, workers, or slaves, and even the gravest of colonial sins, egregious confiscation of private property, a.k.a. freeing enslaved men, women, and children. Despite his enlightened and benevolent ideals, this went down like a lead balloon on Jupiter with the aggrieved and now thoroughly aggravated owners and overseers, who eventually banded together to stop this preposterous show of mercy, no doubt helped in this endeavor by an ever-opportunistic Gallegos, who was unbelievably still lurking around in the shadowy side alleys of La Victoria. At his considerable prompting, a mob of masters and plantation overseers gathered and assaulted Governor Tercero's residence at the Montejo Estates, eventually storming and ransacking his, that is the elder Montejo's, personal quarters. Interim Governor Tercero somehow managed to survive the attack, and after fleeing to Veracruz, he would retire from office a few months later, officially handing power back to the Montejos, and then he dropped political life altogether opting to become a Franciscan monk in Mexico City and live out the rest of his days in pious obscurity. His brief experiment in benevolent ruling failed only months after it had been attempted. Oh well, back to the subservient status quo it seemed. This status quo would be established as the elder Montejo had accomplished his goals in Mexico City. With his political victory in hand, he sent word to the garrison at Salamanca de Champotón Via Captain Gonzalo Nieto, that the villa be abandoned in favor of the more defensible Victoria. He also sent his son El Moso with the powers of Governor of Tabasco to dislodge the incorrigible Baltasar de Osorio y Gallegos, who had wormed his way back into the governor's comfy chair after Francisco III's untimely departure. The final expulsion of Gallegos would be accomplished in November 1533 and it would prove the last time the Gallegos thorn would have to be removed as Gallegos next leaves for Cuba, finally giving up his dreams of Tabascan rule and instead signing up for an expedition with Hernández de Soto to again try and conquer Florida, where he would die in obscurity. As far as the Montejos were concerned, this was the best contribution the natives of the Americas ever made to the Spanish cause. Events back in Spain, however, would soon come to shake things up again, as in December 9, 1533, a royal missive was sent by longtime friend of the Montejos, Juan de Lerma, who had gone from writing memoirs in the fringes of the empire to the very seat of power itself as the shiny new royal treasurer. Since El Adelantado now had powerful friends in the highest halls of government, it came with some lucrative kickbacks, specifically the missive we just saw arriving handing Montejo the Elder temporary governorship of Tabasco, Yucatán, and now Honduras, in order to better coordinate the conquest of the peninsula. All this came much to the displeasure of the current Honduran governor, Pedro de Alvarado, and his vocal friends in the court. Pedro had been quite the busy bee since we last saw him. After squealing to Velázquez and joining Cortés as one of his 13 horsemen of Centla and lieutenant in Tenochtitlán, Pedro had since been off attempting to conquer the jungles of Central and South America. Now he reappears in our story to serve as El Adelantado's new nemesis, given that Baltasar de Osorio y Gallegos is off in Florida dying in obscurity. De Alvarado would prove a much more skilled opponent than Gallegos as he locked horn with the Montejos over control of the territory of Honduras and ultimately Central America a battle we will quickly summarize in the next episode. So before we go, let's just see where all the pieces are on the board. The general El Adelantado sent to recover the Salamanca de Champotón garrison, a man named Gonzalo Nieto, arrived in mid-1535 and spent a few months attempting to hold the villa unsuccessfully. Eventually, he followed El Adelantado's orders and evacuated the site having every intention of returning to recover his property and lands. This would officially mark the end of the second attempted invasion of the Yucatan, an invasion which, for the moment, had been successfully repelled by the Maya. The remaining Maya in the region celebrated jubilantly, believing they had fully defeated their hated foes and finally kicked them out of their jungles for good. Because of this belief, they opted to recover their hidden idols and gold from the mountaintops and cenotes they had been deposited in for safekeeping, rather than build up the defenses of their many vulnerable cities. A mistake they would come to regret when the third invasion of the Yucatan begins. By this time, however, the second Audiencia of Mexico was being replaced yet again with the institution that would survive longer than a handful of years, the Viceroyalty of New Spain. Established in 1535, it was headed by the honorable and prudent Don Antonio de Mendoza. With the arrival of the viceroy, the provincial colony of New Spain was officially elevated to status of full province within the Spanish Empire, and a viceroy was just a fancy name given to the governor of said royal province. And it will be this new viceroy's first few official actions that will concern the beginnings of our next episode. And so we will leave El Adelantado here, at the mercy of the new Viceroy Mendoza, with the fate of the Yucatán hanging in the balance of the next few moves. In today's episode, we covered the life of Francisco de Montejo, the elder, and his time in the Yucatán, along with his family and supporters, particularly focusing on his son and nephew, as well as his wife Beatriz de Herrera, and his loyal lieutenant Alonso de Avila who all joined him in 1527 after he received the royal mandates from Holy Roman Emperor Charles V to conquer the Yucatan. He would spend the next few several years quelling rebellions and expelling his early rival Baltasar de Osorio y Gallegos, not once, not twice, but three times, before Gallegos finally gave up the ghost and went to the place where failed Spanish conquerors went to die, Florida. During this time, the Montejo clan would establish eight Salamancas throughout the Yucatán, all in an attempt to encircle the Yucatán interior with friendly territories before striking at its heart. Next week, we will see El Mozo abandoning his father's encirclement strategy after troubling events in Honduras forced the Younger's hand. Pedro de Alvarado will be back to cause said troubling, And we will see the conclusion of the Montejo's time administering and developing the growing territory of Tabasco. So I will see you all next time. As always, thank you for listening. Gracias y que viva bien. Adios and goodbye for now.